The Swiss Family Robinson Chapter 1 A Shipwreck and Preparations for Deliverance Already the tempest had continued six days. On the seventh its fury seemed still increasing, and the morning dawned upon us without a prospect of hope. For we had wandered so far from the right track, and were so forcefully driven toward the southeast, that none on board knew where we were. The ship's company were exhausted by labor and watching, and the courage which had sustained them was now sinking. The shivered masts had been cast into the sea. Several leaks appeared, and the ship began to feel. The sailors forborn bore from swearing many were at prayer on their knees, while others offered miracles of future piety and goodness as the condition of their release from danger. My beloved children, said I to my four boys who clung to me in their fright, God can save us, for nothing is impossible to him. We must, however, hold ourselves resigned, and instead of murmuring at his decree, rely that what he sees fit to do is best, and that should he call us from this earthly scene, we shall be near him in heaven and united through eternity. Death may be well supported, when it does not separate those who love. My excellent wife wiped the tears which were falling on her cheeks, and from this moment became more tranquil. She encouraged the youngest children, who were leaning on her knees, while I, who owed them an example of firmness, was scarcely able to resist my grief at the thought of what would most likely be the fate of being so tenderly beloved. We all fell on our knees, and supplicated the God of mercy to protect us, and the emotion and fervor of the innocent creatures are a convincing proof that even in childhood devotion may be felt and understood, and that tranquility and consolation, its natural effects, may at that season be no less certainly experienced. Fritz, my eldest son, implored in a loud voice that God would deign to save his dear parents and his brothers. Generously unmindful of himself, the boys rose from their posture with a state of mind so improved that they seemed forgetful of the impending danger. I myself began to feel my hopes increase as I beheld the affecting group. Heaven will surely have pity on them, thought I, and will save their parents to guard their tender years. This moment a cry of land, land was heard through the roaring of the waves, and instantly the vessel struck against a rock with so violent a motion as to drive every one from his place. A tremendous cracking succeeded, as if the ship was going to pieces. The sea rushed in in all directions. We perceived that the vessel had grounded and could not longer hold together. The captain called out that all was lost, and bade the men lose not a moment in putting out the boats. The sounds fell on my heart like a thrust from a dagger. We are lost, I exclaimed, and the children broke out into piercing cries. I then recollected myself, and addressing them again, exhorted them to courage, by observing that the water had not yet reached us, that the ship was near land, and that providence would assist the brave. Keep where you are, added I, while I go and examine what is best to be done. 
I now went on the deck. A wave instantly threw me down and wetted me to the skin. Another followed, and then another. I sustained myself as steadily as I could, and looking around, a scene of terrific and complete disaster met my eyes. The ship was shattered in all directions, and on one side there was a complete breach. The ship's company crowded into the boats till they could contain not one man more, and the last two entered were now cutting the ropes to move off. I called to them with almost frantic entries to stop and receive us also, but in vain, for the roaring of the sea prevented my being heard, and the waves which rose to the height of mountains would have made it impossible to return. All hope from this source was over. For while I spoke, the boats and all their conta they contained were driving out of sight. My best consolation now was to observe that the slanting position the ship had taken would afford us present protection from the water, and that the stern under which was the cabin that enclosed all that was dear to me on earth had been driven upwards between two rocks and seemed immovably fixed. At the same time, in the distance southward, I described, through clouds and rain, several nooks of land, which, though rude and savage in appearance, were the objects of every hope I could form in this distressing moment. Sunk and desolate from the loss of all chance of human aid, it was yet my duty to appear serene before my family. Courage, dear ones, cried I, on entering their cabin, let us not desert ourselves. I will not conceal from you that the ship is aground, but we are at least in greater safety than if she were beating upon the rocks. Our cabin is above water, and should the sea be more calm tomorrow, we may yet find means to reach the land in safety. What I had just said appeased their fears, for my family had the habit of confiding in my assurances. They now began to feel the advantage of the ship's remaining steel for its motion had been most distressing, by jostling them one against another, or whatever happened to be nearest. My wife, however, more accustomed than the children to read my inmost thoughts, perceived the anxiety which devoured me. I made her a sign which conveyed an idea of the hopelessness of our situation, and I had the consolation to see that she was resolved to support the trial with resignation. Let us take some nourishment, said she. Our courage will strengthen with our bodies. We shall perhaps need this comfort to support a long and melancholy night. The fury of the tempest had not abated. The planks and beams of the vessel separated in many parts with a horrible crash. We thought of the boats and feared that all they contained must have sunk under the foaming surge. My wife had prepared a slender meal, and the four boys partook of it with an appetite to which their parents were strangers. They went to bed, and exhausted by fatigue, soon were snoring soundly. Fritz, the eldest, sat up with us. I have been thinking, said he, after a long silence, how it may be possible to save ourselves. If we had some bladders or cork jackets for my mother and my brothers, you and I, father, would soon contrive to swim to land. That is a good thought, said I. We will see what can be done. Fritz and I looked about for some small empty firkins. 
These we tied two and two together with handkerchiefs or towels, leaving about a foot distance between them, and fastened them as swimming jackets under the arms of each child, my wife at the same time preparing one for herself. We provided ourselves with knives, some string, some turfs, and other necessary necessaries which could be put into the pocket, proceeding upon the hope that if the ship went to pieces in the night, we would either be able to swim to land or be driven thither by the waves. Fritz, who had been up all night and was fatigued with his laborious occupations, now lay down near his brothers and was soon asleep. But their mother and I, too anxious to close our eyes, kept watch, listening to every sound that seemed to threaten a future change in our situation. We passed this awful night in prayer, in agonizing apprehensions, and in forming various resolutions as to what we should next attempt. We held with joy the first gleam of light which shot through a small opening of the window. The raging of the winds had begun to abate, the sky was become serene, and hope throbbed in my bosom as I beheld the sun already tinging the horizon. Thus revived, I summoned my wife and the boys to the deck to partake of the scene. The youngest children, half forgetful of the past, asked with surprise why were we there alone and what had become of the ship's company. I led them to the recollection of our misfortune and then added, Dearest children, a being more powerful than man has helped us and will no doubt continue to help us if we do not abandon ourselves to a fruitless despair. Observe our companions, in whom we have so much confidence, have deserted us, and that divine providence in its goodness has given us protection. But, my dear ones, let us show ourselves willing in our exertions, and thus deserve support from heaven. Let us not forget this useful maxim, and let each labor according to his strength. Fritz advised that we should all throw ourselves into the sea while it was calm and swim to land. Ah, that may be well enough for you, said Ernest, for you can swim, but we others should soon be drowned. Would it not be better to make a float of rafts and to set to land altogether upon it? Vastly well, answered I, if we had the means for contriving such a float, and if, after all, it were not a dangerous sort of conveyance. But come, my boys, look each of you about the ship and see what can be done to enable us to reach the land. They now all sprang from me with eager looks to do as I desired. I, on my part, lost no time in examining what we had to depend upon as to provisions and fresh water. My wife and the youngest boy visited the animals whom they found in a pitiable condition, nearly perishing with hunger and thirst. Fritz repaired to the ammunition room, Ernest in the carpenter's cabin, and Jack to the apartment of the captain. But scarcely had he opened the door when two large dogs sprang upon him and saluted him with such rude affection that he roared for assistance as if they had been killing him. Hunger, however, had rendered the poor creature so gentle that they licked his hands and face, uttering all the time a low sort of moan, and continuing their caresses till he was almost suffocated. Poor Jack exerted all his strength and blows to drive them away. At last he began to understand and to sympathize in their joyful movements, and put himself upon another footing. He 
got upon his lace, and gently taking the largest dog by the ear, sprang upon his back, and with great gravity presented himself thus mounted before me as I came out of the ship's hold. I could not refrain from laughing, and I praised his courage, but I added a little exhortation to be cautious and not to go too far with animals of this species, who in state of hunger might be dangerous. By and by, my little company were again assembled round me, and each boasted of what he had to contribute. Fritz had two fowling pieces, some powder, and small shot, contained in horn flasks, and some bullets in bags. Ernest produced his hat filled with nails, and held in his hands a hatchet and a hammer. In addition, a pair of pincers, a pair of large scissors, and an auger peeped out at his pocket hole. Even the little Francis carried upon his arm a box of no very small size, from which he eagerly produced what he called some little sharp pointed hooks. His brother smiled scornfully. Vastly well, gentlemen, said I, but let me tell you the youngest has brought the most valuable prize, and this is often the case in the world. The person who least courts the smiles of fortune, and in the calm of his heart is scarcely conscious of her existence, is often he to whom she most readily presents herself. These little sharp-pointed hooks, as Francis called them, are fishing hooks, and will probably be of more use in preserving our lives than all we may find besides in the ship. Justice, however, I must confess that what Fritz and Ernest have contributed will also afford essential service. I, for my part, said my wife, have brought nothing, but I have some tidings to communicate which I hope will secure my welcome. I have found on board a cow and an ass, two goats, six sheep, and a sow big with young. I have just supplied them with food and water, and I reckon on being able to preserve their lives. All this is admirable, said I to my young laborers, and there is only Master Jack, who, instead of thinking of something useful, has done us the favor to present us two personages, who, no doubt, will be principally distinguished by being willing to eat more than we shall have to give them. All, replied Jack, but if we can once get to land, you will see that they will assist us in hunting and shooting. True enough, said I. But be so good as to tell us how we are to get to land, and whether you have contrived the means. I am sure it cannot be very difficult, said Jack, with an arc motion of his head. Look here at these large tubs. Why cannot each of us get into one of them and float to land? I remember I succeeded very well in this manner on the water when I was visiting my grandfather. Everyone thought is good for something, cried I, and I begin to believe that what Jack has suggested is worth a trial. Quick, then, boy, give me the saw, the auger, and some nails. We will see what is to be done. I recollected having seen some empty casks in the ship's hold. We went down and found them floating in the water which had got into the vessel. It cost us but little trouble to hoist them up and place them on the lower deck, which was at this time scarcely above water. We saw with joy that they were all sound, well guarded by iron hoops, and in every respect in good condition. They were exactly suited for the object, and with the assistance of my sons, I instantly began to saw them in two. In a short time I had produced eight tubs of equal size and of the proper height. We now allowed ourselves some refreshment of wine and biscuit. I was surprised to see that my wife did not partake our eagerness. She sighed deeply as she looked at them. Never, never, cried she, can I venture to get into one of these. 
Do not decide so hastily, my dear, said I. My plan is not yet complete, and you will see presently that it is more worthy of our confidence than this shattered vessel which cannot move from its place. I then sought for a long, pliant plank, and placed my eight tubs upon it, leaving a piece at each end. Reaching beyond the tubs, which bent upward, would present an outline like the keel of a vessel. We next nailed all the tubs to the plank, and then the tubs to each other as they stood side by side to make them the firmer and afterwards to, up to other planks of the same length as the first on each side of the tubs. When all this was finished, we found we had produced a kind of narrow boat, divided into eight compartments, which I had no doubt would be able to perform a short course in calm water. But now we discovered that the machine we had contrived was so heavy that with the strength of all united, we were not able to move it an inch from its place. I bade Fritz fetch me a crow, who soon returned with it. In the meanwhile, I sawed a thick round pole into several pieces to make some rollers. I then, with the crow, easily raised the foremost part of my machine, while Fritz placed one of the rollers under it. How astonishing, cried Ernest, that this engine, which is smaller than any of us, can do more than our united strength was able to effect. I wish I could know how it is constructed. I explained to him as well as I could the power of Archimedes' lever, with which he said he could move the world if you would give him a point from which his mechanism might act, and promised to explain the nature of the operation of the crow when we should be safe on land. One of the points of my system of education for my sons was to awaken their curiosity by interesting observations, to leave time for the activity of the imagination, and then to correct any error they might fall into. I contented myself now, however, with this general remark that God sufficiently compensated the natural weakness of man by the gifts of reason, of invention, and the adroitness of the hands, and that human meditation and skill had produced a science called mechanics, the object of which was to teach us how to make our own natural strength act to an incredible distance and with extraordinary force by the invention of instruments. Jack here remarked that the action of the crow was very slow. Better slow than never, Jack, replied I. Experience has ever taught, and mechanical observations have established as a principle that what is gained in speed is lost in strength. The purpose of the crow is not to enable us to raise anything rapidly, but to raise what is exceedingly heavy, and the heavier the thing we would move, the slower is the mechanical operation. But are you aware what we have at our command to compensate this slowness? Yes, it is turning the handle quicker. Your guess is wrong. That would be no compensation. The true remedy, my boy, is to call in the assistance of patience and reason. With the aid of these two, I am in hopes to set my machine afloat. As I said this, I tied a long cord to the stern, and the other end of it to one of the timbers of the ship, which appeared to be still firm, so that the cord being left loose would serve to guide and restrain it when launched. We now put a second and third roller under, and applying the crow to our great joy, our machine descended into the water with such a velocity that if the rope had not been well fastened, it would have gone far out to sea. But now a new difficulty presented itself. The boat leaned so much on one side that the boys all exclaimed they could not venture to get into it. 
I was for some moments in the most painful perplexity, but it suddenly occurred to me that ballast only was wanting to set it straight. I drew it near and threw the things I could find into the tub so as to make weight on the light side. By degrees, the machine became quite straight and firm in the water, seeming to invite us to take refuge in its protection. All now would get into the tubs, and the boys began to dispute which would be, should be first. I drew them back, and seeking a remedy of this kind of obstacle, I recollected that savage nations make use of a paddle pre for preventing their canoes from upsetting. I once more set to work to make one of these. I took two poles of equal length, upon which the sails of the vessel had been stretched, and having descended into the machine, fixed one of them at the head and the other at the stern, in such a manner as to enable us to turn them at pleasure to right or left, as should best answer the purpose of guiding and putting it out to sea. I struck the end of each pole or paddle into the bunghole of an empty brandy keg, which served to keep the paddle steady and to prevent any interruption in the management of our future enterprise. There remained nothing more to do but to find in that way I could clear out from the encumbrance of the wreck, but to find in what way I could clear out from the encumbrance of the wreck. I got into the first tub and stirred the head of the machine so as to enter the cleft in the ship's side where it could remain quiet. I then remounted the vessel and sometimes with a saw and sometimes with a hatchet I cleared away to right and left everything that could obstruct our passage. And that being effected we next secured some oars for the voyage we resolved on attempting. We had spent the day in laborious exertions. It was already late, and as it would not have been possible to reach the land that evening, we were obliged to pass a second night in the wrecked vessel, which at every instant threatened to fall to pieces. We next refreshed ourselves by a regular meal, for during the day's work we had scarcely allowed ourselves to take a bit of bread or a glass of wine, being now in a more tranquil and apprehensive state of mind than the day before we all abandoned ourselves to sleep. Not, however, till I had used the precaution of tying the swimming apparatus around my three youngest boys and my wife, in case the storm should again come on. I also advised my wife to dress herself in the clothes of one of the sailors, which were so much more convenient for swimming, or any other exertion she might be compelled to engage in. She consented, but not without reluctance, and left us to look for some that might best suit her size. In a quarter of an hour she returned, dressed in the clothes of a young man who had served as volunteer on board the ship. She could not conceal the timid awkwardness so natural in such a situation, but I soon found means to reconcile her to the change, by representing the many advantages it gave her, till at length she joined in the merriment her dress occasioned, and one and all crept in our separate hammocks, where a delicious repose prepared us for the renewal of our labors.